Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer has unveiled their climate plan. What's the difference? Trudeau and Trump are meeting for a discussion on trade. And oh yeah, those detainees in China. And city councillors vote in Hamilton to change the way construction projects are awarded in the city. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives have unveiled their party's plan for climate change. Uh, Many are, well, you know, <laughs> I'll wait. Michael Tobe is here, a Troy Media, uh, Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, as well, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time, as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So what are your thoughts on this plan? plan is fine by me. I know that obviously people are not going to be happy with the fact that, as the Toronto Star and other publications listed, there are no targets whatsoever <clears throat> that they've actually established. But I think overall, if you look at it, it's a plan that many conservatives can get behind because it emphasizes <clears throat> the issue of tax credits, which is something that we've always worked hard for in terms of just business in general. It's something we believe that can also be used and established properly uh, in the environment. And I think it's a good way to do it. Um, as well, there are some numbers that do come through it. Like, for example, there is, I'm just not saying in front of it, there's a cap, as I recall, on, a, on industrial emissions. And anyone that goes beyond, I believe it's 40 kilowatt tons per year, would then obviously be, would then obviously have to pay a small fine. So there certainly are numbers for people to chew on. It's a question of whether you feel that you want to proceed ahead with an action plan to improve carbon emissions and, and basically try to protect the environment and make our climate better. And if we're going to do that and we're going to reach the target numbers that were established uh, for Paris in 2030, I think that looking at a more realistic system of tax credits and not making up all these imaginary target numbers where you have to move the needle every so often when you don't reach it by a certain stage or point, I think is actually a more effective way to look at it overall. Perfect? Not by any means. Better than what the Liberals have? Absolutely. Uh, Can Canadians decode this? How do they interpret all of this? No, they can't decode it. That's the problem. You're going to get people after I, after I get off the phone who are going to start saying, how can anyone come out here and say this is great when there are no targets? This is unfortunately what people have been conditioned to, Scott, is that you basically, for us to get from here by, you know, year X, which is 2019 to 2030, which is 11 years, we have to establish a target base of dot, da dot, da dot, da dot, da Or we have to implement a carbon tax, <clears throat> pardon me, as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Liberals want to do. And with this, we can then reduce things by da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's how we've unfortunately been conditioned. It's not realistic, though, because even the slightest change, positive or negative, of any target number means that reaching the actual target date will have to be adjusted. This is why I've never agreed with the political left when they do things like this, I mean, again, I'm not the, I'm the one of the world's last great environmentalists. I admit that freely. But at the same time, I think like most people, <clears throat> I recognize that it's an important issue for Canadians that the Paris Agreement, the target numbers for 2030, were not unrealistic. And while certainly I don't believe that, for example, if Canada, who contributes somewhere in the neighborhood 
of 1.7% of the world's carbon emissions, which is a Yeah, but they'll, they'll, be qu- they'll be very quick to say, but per capita, we're like one of the worst in the world. <clears throat> well, they can say it, but overall, our, our output of emissions is actually very, very low. The world's biggest polluters are China, Russia, and others. And by the way, just for the record, so you remember this, I'm glad that everyone wants to do their bit, quote-unquote, but if China and Russia are not on board, this is all quite meaningless. However, if we want to reach the 2030 target numbers, we have to do something. I think that the way <clears throat> Justin Trudeau and the Liberals want to do it is tax us to death with this carbon tax and various other things and make people furious. You may not love the conservative plan because it doesn't establish target lines or a baseline of any sort, but there will be tax credits for businesses, which means there will be incentives to actually reduce emissions. I think that's a much better way of doing it. Is this industry's problem to solve? Will they do that without government intervention? Well, look, <clears throat> pardon me, sorry. Um, I think that it's basically now <clears throat> down to Canadians to decide which way they want to be governed when it comes to the environment. Do they trust government to bring down emission rates and to implement programs so that people are forced and businesses are forced to follow through on certain things? Much like the carbon tax, for example, where, you know, you have to put, st- you know, gas stations have to put stickers no- denoting these things or they'll get penalized otherwise. Is this really the type of thing that we want in a, <clears throat> in a democratic society, in a country that respects the free market to some degree? Or do we want businesses to take the lead, as you sort of alluded to, Scott, where <clears throat> they have to make the, pardon me, they have to make the initiative or take the initiative to ensure that rates come down under a plan which incentivizes the element of actually doing so or participating in this program and makes it better for them overall. I, you know, there's lots of people who sit and complain that we always, you know, conservatives by nature, always look to business, always ways for angles for business to improve, so to speak. Well, businesses are part of the economic engine much the same way that workers are. And if you, you ignore the interests of business, you know, it may make you feel good in the grand scheme of things, But that's not the way to create a successful economy. If we want to improve the environment, I and most right-leaning Canadians and others, mind you, will believe that something like a tax benefit is the way to encourage businesses and others to actually cut their emissions rate. Rather than setting targeted numbers, which I think in the grand scheme of things may may may, make people happy to look on in a chart, for example, but it doesn't mean anything because the target number is just sort of an imaginary line. And if it has to be adjusted, getting to the target date, in this case 2030, will be nearly impossible. And we've already seen how ineffectively Justin Trudeau and the Liberals have handled this issue and how much the country is now firmly opposed. More than half of the provinces and more than half the provincial governments that we have are opposed to a national carbon tax, maybe the needle is shifting in a different direction. And it's not against consumers, it's not against businesses, it's against this federal government and its ineffective plan to set, to basically improve and make sure that the environment is manageable and salvageable for future generations. Uh, obviously, uh, this this government has, has made uh, climate change a pillar of their... Uh, election campaign. How big yes. an issue is this for the Conservatives? Are they just answering these questions, putting forth this policy because the others have pushed them into that corner? 
Well, look, I mean, obviously the other side is going to say that. You and I both know that, whether you agree with it or not. I'm just even reading John Iveson's uh, headline here from from the National Post. Sheer climate plan gives voters what they want, expressions of concern with no actual cost. He's suggesting that perhaps Conservatives have missed an opportunity here. Well, that's Iveson, and, you know, and John is, a, is entitled to his opinion. No, I don't think they've missed an opportunity. I mean, obviously the Liberal or the Liberal government has been goading them for quite a while, you know, with this countdown of several hundred days since Andrew Scheer said he was going to announce, a, you know, an environmental plan. Where is it? They had fun with it. They had their moment in the sun every so often, a little bit with it, and now there's a plan out. I don't think they've missed the boat on anything. I think they've tried to, <clears throat> pardon me, create an environmental plan that will appeal to voters, appeal to their base, who they need to hold on to, and ensure that conservatives are being seen as a, a political party and hopefully a government at the end of it by the fall who wants to deal with everything. And that includes matters of, you know, governmental reform. It could Im- improve uh, the way we look at business, taxes, you know, the reducing the size of government. And it looks at the environment, too. Yes, it's not the biggest issue that some conservatives have in mind. I'm not going to, you know, I don't think there's any point in saying that because it would be a lie. But it's not an unimportant issue either. And most conservatives recognize that Canadians, including members of their own families, are concerned about the environment and want to make things better and improve things for our children and future generations. That is something that conservatives believe in. That's why we're looking to the environment. That's why they brought out this policy measure. That's why they're looking at tax credits rather than just setting baselines. And I think overall, while some people may say we've missed the boat on it, I think actually we've created, well, the, the Andrew Scheer and the Tories have created a policy on the environment that will work and will resonate with voters because, most importantly, Scott, it's completely different than what Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are offering. Ken, you know, you just <clears throat> said a very valid point. It's completely different than what the, the Liberals are offering. Uh, do, do Canadians have the capacity to wade through this? Or, um, uh, again, is it, you know, we've, we've heard the phrase, everybody wants a clean environment, nobody wants to pay for it. Right. Um, I, I'm not sure that's the, the question. I think the question is, is, what's the best way to do it and, and still be cost effective at it and, and not cripple the, envi- or cripple the economy? Right. Um, is this just about, for, for each party, grabbing onto some sort of line or catchphrase that puts it over the top? Or do people actually get this stuff? Well, I mean, that's obviously a very different question than just talking about the environment, because every political party, either on the right of the spectrum or the left of the spectrum, has their own little catchphrases or buzzwords or clips that they're going to put out there to sort of hopefully encourage people to either stay on their side if they've been longtime supporters or basically follow along with them and vote for them when an election is held, like the one we're holding on October 21st. That's just the way the game is played. <clears throat> so to expect that the Conservatives were going to do any differently than the Liberals, the NDP, the Greens, obviously, and others, when it comes to the environment, would just be a machination. But within the sloganeering, there's obviously a semblance of an understanding of why the issue is important, how we're going to tackle the issue, and basically trying to create an answer to find a resolution, or at least move it on the right path or the right road, in terms of getting to a spot where they're comfortable with the solution ahead of them for an issue. 
in the case of the environment, not to be a broken record, they have taken an angle which is appeals more to their base and to business-oriented or right-leaning individuals, which are tax credits. That's what they've chosen to do. I don't know whether Canadians, as, you, as you've asked a couple times, will be able to sit and parse through all the material. I have no idea whether they will. I don't know if they'll be bothered by the fact that target numbers have not been established by <clears throat> Andrew Shear and the Tories. That could bother them as time goes along. And if that's the case, then they'll have to retrench, they'll have to reset and try to figure out what to do from that point on. But as a basic starting point, after all the antagonism and the, the commentary and the goading from the other side of, where's your plan, where's your plan? Well, there is the plan. The plan is now in front of us. You can actually read it on, I presume, although I haven't looked today. I presume it's on the, the federal Tory website. There are ways to access it. Newspapers have reproduced it. There are web links everywhere. People should take a look. If they're really that concerned and fascinated and intrigued and worried about the environment, take a look at it. See if it makes sense. And if it works for you, great. If not, then you have the right in a democratic society to be critical of it and say this is not the right plan. I think that more Canadians, rather than less, will at least look at this as something more realistic. It doesn't deal with a national carbon tax, which is a complete and utter fraud and terrible idea that has been brought forward by this government on many different levels. You and I have talked about some of them, and I've talked and written about it for years, how it's just completely, it's no more than a facade that people actually buy into. And if you really want to do your bit for the environment, well, here's the way to do it with a business-savvy or business-oriented, if you'd like, model that will help. Okay, so uh, Andrew Scheer has finally announced the Conservative plan earlier on in the week. The Liberals declared a climate emergency and, yeah. and okay to pipeline. So at the end of the week, after the dust settles, who's farther ahead, who's farther behind? Has anything changed? Uh, a little too early to tell. Shear's plan has only literally come out in the last day. So I think we have to yeah. at least give it a week or two, to be fair, to sort of yeah. figure it out. Um, let's put it this way. I mean, obviously, Shear's plan is only 24 hours old, so we'll be nice and give it a pass, because I don't think most people have really taken the time to study it. With the Liberals, as you said, there's been a little bit more time to talk about certain issues. Um, I'd say 50-50 overall on how they handle things. <clears throat> yes, it was good that the Trans Mountain Pipeline was obviously pushed through. It was the way it was done, Scott, that was the huge mistake, which was government getting involved and purchasing a project that, yes, left to its own devices without any sort of proper line of competition or at least a good, a, a good battle in terms of people com with competing prices to see who could actually do it in the private sector, I don't know if taxpayers really should be involved in something like owning a pipeline, because in effect, that's what's happened. Justin Trudeau and the Liberals didn't purchase it out of thin air. They used taxpayer dollars to actually buy it. So we are technically the owners of this pipeline. It's a terrible precedent, which was set a number of years ago during the struggles with the North American auto industry, as you may remember, Scott, when both the U.S. and Canadian governments got involved and had to purchase into or buy into a number of auto companies to prevent them from folding, that's not the way the free market operates or should operate. It's the same thing with Trans Mountain. That's not the way it should be done. But unsurprisingly, the Liberals are going through with it, which shouldn't shock anyone because even though Mr. Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, is obviously one of the more left-leaning prime ministers we've had in this country's history, 
There has never been a liberal leader to date that I can think of who has ever been fundamentally opposed to an idea like pipelines, and Justin Trudeau has spoken in favor of them in the past before. It was astonishing to me that some liberals and some and many Canadian progressives actually thought he had just bought the pipeline and wasn't going to do anything with it, or that he would never go through and approve it. Yeah, that was absolute madness. And but, many and many thought that. Many thought that that's it. We would just eat it, and that would be the end of it. Yeah, it's on so. And if you don't believe either of us, folks, it's on social media. Look yeah. it up. It's astonishing how many people bought into this nonsense. But anyway, so the end result is. I'm glad it's going through with the pipeline. It's the process that I really didn't like. And as for the national climate emergency, a crock. I can almost end it right there. Absolute and utter nonsense. And I know people are going to say, but the United Kingdom did the same thing. True. And they shouldn't have done it either. It is utter nonsense to do this. It just creates hysteria where hysteria is unnecessary. Well, that's the part I can't, like, why create the hysteria and then award the pipeline? I mean, it's just, it's, you know, I mean, even the yeah. quote that he had the other day about the pipeline, about having to get resources to market, it made common sense. But, you know, yeah. you, you can't say that and then paint to the extremes and, and, and you know, yell like your hair's on fire that the world's coming to an end. Yes. No, you've actually, yeah, no, no, you've interpreted it quite correctly. You're right. You can't do something like that, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Unfortunately, we've just come into a day and age where a lot of people, they read the headlines they either, or they listen to it on radio, watch it on TV or whatever they do, and it just sort of sifts through one ear and goes out the other. I think people should look at this juxtaposition, which is why I sort of said it was a 50-50 day, well, 50-50 week for him, where he did the right thing on one thing and just, as I said before, hysteria on the other. Do the two things necessarily connect? No, they don't. But with, is there really a national climate emergency in this world? Ladies and gentlemen, there most certainly is not. If you want to believe the David Suzuki's of the world and others, be my guest. But it's utter nonsense. We definitely do have to take care of the environment. We need to obviously ensure that it is protected for our generation and future generations. But we are not in the midst of an emergency. All this was done was a political ploy to get attention about something like this and to start pointing fingers at many provincial governments, mostly right-leaning, but one liberal as well in PEI, who have all directly said or said in the past that, you know what, no, you know, uh, we're, we're not in favor of a national carbon tax. We, we want to deal with the climate. We want to deal with the environment. But we don't believe it's at a stage, say, where it would be a national emergency. It's not. And I wish the Liberals would stop with this. Michael Tobe has been with us. Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump are meeting today. It seems there's, they've got a lot in common to discuss. Uh, we're going to talk about that and tensions. Uh, they're going to talk about uh, trade tensions in China, uh, as um, as Rick just mentioned on the news. Uh, it appears that uh, Donald Trump is going to ask uh, uh, the Chinese president when he meets with him uh, next week uh, in regard to the detainees, uh, the, the two Canadian detainees in China. Also, uh, tensions growing with Iran and reports of a U.S. drone being shot down. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. And, of course, make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. So let's start with uh, this drone and, and an update and what, we've, what we know from that. Uh, 
Uh, apparently, this was shot down. However, we're not sure in what airspace it was taken down, or do we know? Well, what we're hearing from uh, officials uh, from from a Pentagon briefing that happened about uh, within the last hour or so, uh, they are saying that according to uh, information they have from the flight path that this drone was taking, that it was inside international waters off of the coast of Iran. And basically, uh, international waters is anything outside of 12 nautical miles from the shoreline of Iran. So uh, Pentagon officials are, uh, are are very convinced that this, uh, this drone was flying over international waters when it was shot down by uh, members of the Iranian regime. So that's kind of the, the uh, point of contention right now that has the White House's feathers all ruffled up by saying, look, this was our infrastructure that was flying over international waters. This is an act of provocation uh, if this was done intentionally. The president, meanwhile, is saying that maybe this wasn't an intentional attack, trying to potentially uh, kind of calm down any kind of rhetoric that's coming from Iran right now. So what are the ramifications? Uh, you know, we've heard the the uh, the president use the word, you know, I'm making a big mistake here. Uh, he is pulling back on all of this now. I mean, is, are, are tensions increasing or is, is he stepping back? Well, I think he's trying to calm the situation down. He sent that tweet out a couple of hours ago, basically saying Iran made a big mistake. But he walked those words back just a little bit when he was in the Oval Office with Justin Trudeau by saying that mistake might have actually been an accident by saying, uh, you know, somebody that he said was, quote, stupid might not have been paying attention to what they were doing, sent a missile off, and it struck down something without any kind of malicious intent. So the president trying to walk those words back. And how bizarre does that sound? Well, I mean, this is what happens when the president kind of uses Twitter at a moment's notice and kind of puts information out there, potentially not knowing what the full situation is or potentially not having held a full conversation with those that are involved in the situation and just makes a reactionary uh, comment, then is kind of basically told or, or, or learns otherwise that he needs to kind of take that comment back because Iran isn't somebody that you want to kind of fire off a comment at and let them take the final word because it can have a detrimental impact. So what happens now? Where are we with this? Well, I mean, the continued uh, uh, looking at this situation is going to take place in the Pentagon. I know that the president is uh, expected to meet at the White House this afternoon with leading members of both the House and Senate on the Republican side and on the Democratic side, along with the chairs and ranking members of the Senate Intel and Armed Forces Committee. So this is going to be a a, a moment for the president, everybody involved in Congress, as well as some military officials to get a better look at what was going on and potentially take a step forward as to how they're going to react to this if they do find out that there was malicious intent in that uh, downing of that drone. Where, what do we know about the drone and what was it doing there? Well, it was performing, uh, you know, a, um, a run-of-the-mill kind of security of the area. You know, if it was in international waters, basically it's trying to pay attention to what's happening off the coast of Iran, whether there was uh, any boats that were in there uh, in the Strait of Hormuz that might have had Iranian regime uh, uh, officials on it, potentially, you know, taking any any missiles there or any, any uh, mines that they were attaching to boats earlier. That's what the allegations are. So it was performing a general security area of, of, of the Strait of Hormuz, which is what these drones are intended to to do. Iranian officials are basically kind of jumping for joy at saying, well, look at the technology that we have now. If we can get this uh, missile of ours launched up in the air at some, you know, expensive U.S. military equipment and and bring that down, Iran is looking at this as a big plus right now and a big win for them as the president tries to sit here and say, well, maybe somebody actually made a mistake doing this. 
Uh, will we get to the point of fire and fury? The discussions, we remember those with other various leaders. Um, it, it, does he seem to be aware of the seriousness uh, that he's playing with at this point? Well, yeah, I mean, it's very possible. Look, just 11 months ago, the president released a big tweet in all capital letters saying to Iran, never, ever threaten the United States again or, quote, you'll suffer consequences like the which few have th- uh, few have throughout history. So the president knows how to fight back with somebody if they're trying to kind of infringe on American interests in a certain part of the world. Uh, I don't think the president, though, is going to be the first person to try and go for war. He campaigned on making sure that what he called endless wars were finally over with. He campaigned on bringing people home, even though he's going to be sending potential troops into the Middle East. This is a president who doesn't want to get into any conflict, or at least says that he doesn't want to get into conflict. It's his administration and people around him that potentially could goad him into uh, a conflict in the Middle East. Uh, Wow. How does this stack up with what has happened earlier on uh, last week with the, uh, the oil tanker being hit? And then there was question of whether the evidence was valid or not on on what the source was. What about that story? How does that all how does that all add to this? Well, the information from that is actually still coming out, and that's why some of these drones are flying over the strait, is to be able to gather the information to see if this kind of uh, activity is continuing to persist with uh, with allegations that the Iranians were putting these mines on these tanker ships that were from allies of the United States. So with the incidents that happened over the last couple of weeks, and these stretch back into May, these kind of incidents that happened uh, in that strait there, with what's gone on over the, basically the last month, now with this new information of a drone being shot down, There's also been information that uh, um, Iranian-backed people inside Yemen had shot down a drone as well. So this is kind of something that America is trying to keep an eye on. And they will look at the information. He's going to have this meeting this afternoon. There will be continued talks inside the Pentagon. And then it'll be up to basically the president and how he wants to see this uh, going forward. If he wants to take military action, he's going to have to get congressional approval. If he doesn't get congressional approval, he's very limited as to what he can do with his powers going forward with the military. So these are broad, big conversations that could have big impacts going forward. Is there an appetite to escalate this? I don't think anybody wants to see any kind of of escalation, especially when it comes to a potential for war, especially when it comes to uh, a potential for an incident or conflict in an unstable part of the of the of the world already. Iran is unstable enough as it is. They're threatening to continue uh, the development of nuclear weapons. This could lead to big issues, not only for Iran, but it could also hurt U.S. allies in Iraq. It could also hurt allies through Saudi Arabia and extend back to Israel. So a conflict between the U.S. and Iran is uh, likely not wanted by anybody from the president and his close military advisors. Uh, Will the president's personality destabilize this with added rhetoric, or does he seem to be in control of it at this point? An example earlier of him walking back his tweet. Well, I mean, it, it, that's that's kind of, you know, the question of the day as to what's the president going to say next. He's already said one thing, had to walk it back. If he finds out now that Iranian officials are basically praising the fact that they were able to shoot down this drone, uh, you know, they say it was in their airspace. Americans say that it was over international waters, regardless of the fact. Uh, if, if he sees and finds out that the, that the Iranians are actually kind of, uh, you know, ecstatic over the fact that they were able to create this kind of uh, provocation with U.S. officials, it could be something that leads the president again to make a 
tweet or make some kind of public statement that could ruffle some feathers on both sides of the world. So, again, what the president says with his fingers couldn't have a lasting impact. How concerned is the rest of the world over this? Well, I mean, look, there's a lot of interest in the Middle East, especially when it comes to energy, especially when it comes to oil. There are a number of uh, of commercial tankers that make their way through the Strait of Hormuz on a daily and hourly basis, lots of them having uh, a, a good kinmanship with the United States, some of them not so much. But there could be uh, a drastic impact on what happens if the United States gets caught up into war inside uh, Iran, because it draws in NATO allies. It draws in potential adversaries when it comes to the Middle East. We heard Russia come out today and say that if the U.S. were to make some kind of attack in Iran, it would be, quote, catastrophic. So any kind of conflict that takes place in Iran involving the United States is going to involve a number of countries around the world, and it could be a potentially detrimental outcome. Wow. Um, all right, let's move on to the uh, the meeting with the prime minister and the president that's happening today. What is on the agenda? We, we've heard in, in news reports that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and, uh, and President Trump have talked about the Canadian detainees in China and that Trump is going to speak to China about them. Any truth to that? Yes, so they were in the Oval Office about an hour ago. We just got some of that tape playback from the pool that was inside the Oval Office at the time. Uh, A a little bit of a jovial conversation between the two of them, a little different from when we saw the president making kind of rude name-calling against the prime minister last year from when they were in Quebec. Uh, They acted friendly with each other, the president calling uh, the prime minister by his first name a couple of times. Uh, When it comes to big issues that are impacting both countries, yes, the president has said that you know he sees that there's been an attempt to try and have conversations between Ottawa and Beijing. Jing when it comes to uh, these detainees that are in Chinese custody right now and said that he would do what he can to create uh, a communication line between the leader of China and the leader of of, of, of Canada with, with Trudeau uh, to be able to kind of work this situation out because the president himself is trying to get a line of communication with Xi Jinping when it comes to uh, trade deals for the U.S. and China. So the president doing what he can the first time he's actually said that he would try to help out in this situation, which is all linked to that uh, Huawei uh, extradition request. Uh, It almost appears as if this is not even on his radar, which seems odd considering this was all uh, the the two Canadians were detained in in reaction to the Huawei CFO being detained. Um, What if it was an American that was detained? I mean, is he not fearful of that? You'd think he might be more vocal on this, although I guess he's balancing uh, Canada with what he's doing with China. Absolutely. I mean, look, if this was an American that was detained in China, absolutely, this would be making front page news in the U.S. and it would be on top of mind for the president. But because he's so caught up in this trade negotiation in trying to make sure that tariffs are either doing what they need to do and that the U.S. citizens aren't really being impacted by that, despite the fact that they are, uh, the president is is really kind of trying to keep American interests first and foremost and then deal with any kind of fallout that comes from that. So the fact that he's not thinking about it on a daily basis, it does help when the prime minister is here because they're able to actually have that conversation and elevate the issue in the prime in the president's rather book. I think most Canadians would like to feel that, you know, uh, he would feel the same way about a Canadian being detained as he would an American being detained. Well, the president has a very America first attitude when it comes to things like trade, when it comes to things like uh, policy and foreign policy. He wants to see American interests first. But now that he's got it close to home with the prime minister sitting next to him, we might actually see a concerted effort to have China have a conversation with Canada or at least Canadian officials to try and work something out when it comes to this extradition. So uh, was that it as far as uh, any news about these detainees? Was that it as far as any information of how the extradition case is progressing? Do we know any information on how this is going to move forward? 
No, it was it was just kind of a quick comment that they made uh, kind of in the middle of a big trade conversation and conversation about Iran and conversation about the Toronto Raptors. This was just kind of one thing that was brought in. He said that he would do what he can to get a conversation rolling between the two leaders when they meet at the G20 next week. Outside of that, we had no new information passed on. We had no new uh, conversations or comment, at least, from Canadian or American officials. And then it was kind of on with business with the Prime Minister leaving the White House within the next couple of minutes. What was the main concern of business what was the biggest uh, items on the agenda? Was this basically mostly uh, NAFTA 2.0 moving forward? It was That was the biggest part of the at least the public conversation when the pool was in the room. They had some trade talk back and forth by you know saying it's great that Mexico has been able to ratify this. Trump laid some blame on the Democrats. The prime minister kind of just sat there and, and listened to what the president had to say. But by the president by, uh, saying, look, the Democrats are the ones standing in the way of getting this ratified. Ottawa has already said they won't do anything until Washington gets its act in gear. Uh, the prime minister basically kind of just letting the president do all the talking when it comes to trade. And if we can get something signed within the next couple of weeks, it'll be a good thing. Experts have said if US uh, MCA isn't signed by Congress within the next month, we could likely be looking at this dragging through the election into the end of next year. So is there any is there any problem with that? Is there any issue this dragging on longer? Is it in threat of, uh, of falling apart? Or is, is well, this just the normal negotiation part of this? I mean, negotiations are negotiations, and they can go at a snail's pace. Everybody knows that. Uh, but when it comes to dragging out, so long as the president doesn't kind of get his feathers all ruffled up with talking about trade and ripping up the original NAFTA agreement that's already been in place for the last number of decades, so long as the president leaves that in play, any kind of conversation with NAFTA 2.0 can continue as long as it needs to go. If the president decides to rip up the original NAFTA deal and then start to redraw the new NAFTA, then we have trade issues that are going to go on a trilateral uh, um, uh, spectrum here, and that could cause problems going forward. So as long as the president kind of sticks to his message by saying, if or when this gets signed, things will be good, things will be okay. Uh, What's in it for Donald Trump to have Justin Trudeau down there today? Well, I mean, it's it's kind of putting some blame on the Democrats by saying, look, Canada can't get this progressive new NAFTA signed because Democrats are getting in the way. And as we head into a, you know, a big campaign period for the election next year, the president could say, look, Canada was down here. They're trying to get this thing tra- uh, passed right now. Trade is a big deal between these two countries. And Democrats are the ones who are being obstructionists right now. So the president could actually use this as a talking point going forward by saying, look, Justin Trudeau, lots of people like him. He wants to get this passed. I want to get this passed. So do Republicans. This could become a big problem for the Democrats going forward, Nancy Pelosi needs to play these cards properly. Otherwise, she could come out with a losing hand if she gets in the way of a trade deal getting signed, which is something that the majority of Americans and especially the majority of Trump supporters want to see done. So what's in this visit for Canada? Because surely Justin Trudeau doesn't want to be a part of... Donald Trump's uh, politicizing of the whole event. What does he get out of this? Well, Canadians will see that the Prime Minister is down in the United States, in Washington, trying to get this trade deal passed, trying to ensure that additional tariffs aren't going to be put on Canada. We know that steel and aluminum, that's off the table now, but there's a potential that uh, uranium tariffs could come uh, if the President decides that that's a threat to national security. So Canadians could see the Prime Minister down there working uh, his magic to try and get you know the U.S. to back off a little bit, to try and just kind of get the ball rolling a little bit, and 
And then when we see that the president and prime minister having a conversation in order to get Chinese officials into the conversation when it comes to the Huawei situation, Canadians can look at this as the prime minister doing what he's been elected to do to come down to have conversations at a bilateral level, continue that ball rolling forward. And, uh, you know, whatever happens after that, you know, you have to kind of wait and see. Who else will PM, will the PM be meeting with uh, other than the uh, president over this uh, visit? He's set to head to Capitol Hill within the next 30 minutes or so, 15-minute drive down Pennsylvania Avenue. He's going to meet with Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, the Republican majority and minority leaders from the Senate. Uh, and this is all going to be trade talk as well, a much kind of briefer meeting within 15, 20 minutes or so. Then there's a bit of kind of fun added to it. The prime minister is set to meet with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He's going to cash in on a bet from when the Warriors uh, lost to the Raptors. He's set to pick mm-hmm. up some uh, some wine and some almonds and some chocolate from California that he can bring home and kind of say, well, we won. So how would you describe U.S.-Canada relations now? Uh, last visit, not so great. Uh, does it matter? On the, Does it matter? Because at the end, we all come together and hug and make it look like it's all right. I mean, I don't think that relations are at any kind of negative or tipping point that could put things in a bad way. Two countries are always going to have a different way of getting to the exact same re- uh, result. Some people, some Canadians will have a little more softer diplomacy. Americans will have a little bit more of a hard stick when it comes to diplomacy, but we all want the exact same thing. So I think with, despite the fact that they're two very different people, Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump, trying to put the interests of their country first and foremost, and trying to do it in a bilateral way that works for both. I think that the the relations between the two countries right now are maybe not the best they've ever been, but at least aren't as bad as they could be. One last question. What can, what would Donald Trump say in regard to the detainees? And obviously you don't know that, but uh, how would that be received? I mean, the president can basically get involved by saying, look, this was an extradition request that was put out by the United States. Canada has to uh, basically listen to what the extradition law is. That's how the world of law works. And by telling that to China, by saying, look, Canada is only doing this because of how it's written in law. Please respect their ability to be able to pay attention to the law while we respect your ability and try to get the ball rolling that way. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on that wall? Uh, Reggie Giacchini's been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. Make sure you're watching tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on this. Reggie, as always, thank you so much. Uh, Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, councillors in Hamilton voted 11 to 1 to open the construction market to competition. What does this all mean? This is opting for no action on Bill 66. Uh, That is the Restoring Ontario's Competitive Act. But uh, how did this all, how did we get to where we are? Uh, To talk about all of this, Larry Deany is with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, and on the line with us now. Larry, how are you? I am very well, Scott. Uh, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, it's great to talk to you again. I always love having you on. Um, you know, it's. I was driving down the Red Hill on the weekend after uh, the downbound had, had been reopened. And, you know, uh, at that point, upbound had been closed. And I guess because of the rain and stuff, they really weren't doing anything over the... Uh, the course of the weekend and stuff. And, you know, I'm driving down the highway and I'm thinking, well, this looks great because it's looks it's a totally brand new road, man. There's there's brand new pavement there. And, and as I'm doing that, I'm looking over onto the other side and I'm thinking, what's the difference? And how much money has been wasted and that this is going to cost to literally have to redo this well before it's time 
because of mistakes, which which we all know. And, you know, I'm looking at this one side of the highway sitting idle with just a piece of machinery on it. I'm thinking, how the hell does this happen? Like, people in Hamilton must be furious about this. Well, let me tell you, um, uh, you know, we had that conversation. I'm actually coming back uh, with a group of guys who went uh, up north to do some fishing. Uh, and uh, we had lots of time uh, to, uh, to to bite our time because the mosquitoes were biting better than the fish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> we had a lot of discussions about, uh, these are all Hamiltonians, lots of discussions about uh, uh, current events and, and so on. And that was one of the questions everybody wanted to know. It was, is it worth it? Was it worth the expense of repaving the whole road after only uh, you know um, a, a dozen or so years of operation, and and uh, you know the answer is complicated because on the one hand um, you know everything has a, a shelf life, uh, and um, again uh, let me before you get started there let me say it's like you know what if it needs to be replaced and repaired we got to do it there's no two ways about it. it and I mean yeah, yeah like so I'm not I'm not I'm not disputing that in any way I'm just thinking people must be livid that these kind of mistakes are made and these sorts of Inefficient well, and bad decisions. Yeah, right, and, you know? and, and I mean, if it's got to so, be built, it's got to be built, right, or rebuilt. And and so you you got to wonder whether whether it needed the total and entire rebuild, um, or whether uh, there should have been more investigation uh, on on the asphalt that was. However, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Council did what it did. We've got a a brand new road now. We should celebrate that at least. Uh, what about this all moving forward? And I know we didn't, uh, I didn't have you on to talk about this, and this is the last question I'll ask on this. But as yeah. this moves forward uh, and the repave is done, where does this problem move from here? Well, it, it now becomes a legal question because there is this inquiry that uh, is going on, which is going to be another very expensive process. Uh, I would not have chosen this route to get to the bottom of uh, what might have gone wrong, if anything. Uh, but council decided on this, and, and so we have to see it through. So there's a judge now who's uh, going to be conducting an inquiry. It's going to take some months, I would gather, uh, and uh, we're going to see what falls out of that, uh, whether, um, you know, uh, I mean, people died. Let's never forget that. Yeah. that. There were some people who died, yeah. and I'm sure that there are some anxious folks who want some answers just to bring some closure to, to their horrific situation. And I'm sure that there are lawyers hovering about as well, waiting to see if uh, some legal action uh, might be warranted. So we've not seen the end of the story just yet. Um, obviously, there, there's still a lot of process to go through. But even at this point, have we learned anything? Do we do do we learn anything from this process, from a debrief, or or do we have to wait till this goes right the way to the very end? Well, you know, to to get the full story, you have to now wait until the very end. But but there are lessons learned along the way as well, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, both the administrative staff and and the elected officials um, uh, will reflect on on what's happened, and uh, should the situation present itself again, and hopefully not. Uh, they'll uh, they'll um, you know use this as a learning opportunity to to always do things better. Should the highway a highway of this size be provincial jurisdiction? It be their responsibility rather than a city's. Well, don't forget that the province paid half the cost of that road uh, because it is a provincial highway. It's used by provincial traffic, not just local traffic. Should there have been more oversight by them? 
Well, and well, again, um, they they have been uh, for many many years now. They've been. Uh, remember, Highway Twenty used to be before it was Centennial Parkway. It used to be Highway Twenty. It was yeah. a provincial road. They offloaded a lot of roads to local uh, municipalities because they didn't want the cost of maintaining everything. Uh, and they were somewhat justified in some respects because local traffic uses those roads mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. However. Um, you know, when it comes time like this, where they have the expertise to, to maybe do a due diligence to a greater degree. Yeah, I'm thinking about the process. Removed, yeah, they're also removed from the local political scene. Right. Uh, they, there should always be some oversight. But again, you know, the, the, the government today, and, you know, uh, I'm sure you'll be talking about the, the, the cabinet shuffle and, and changes that have occurred. This government wants to um, reduce the impact of government rather than increase it. And that's always going to be a balancing act. All right. Let's talk about uh, what is happening with the city and uh, the deal in regard to uh, construction and construction, uh, uh, the construction industry and jobs projects in this city. Tell everybody what this is. What do we have now and what's changing? So, so, and this happened on my watch. I was mayor when, uh, when in fact, uh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, un- unionification, um, uh, occurred uh, of the car- of the carpentry. They made an application to become unionized, and and were recognized. Now it was quite controversial at the time, and I don't want to relive, you know, boring history that people may uh, may have by now long forgotten. Uh, but it was very controversial how um, the union uh, representing the carpentry workers in the city of Hamilton, and there were only two, count them one two. So we were not a huge carpent carpentry operation, but they made applications to become unionized. Uh, it was quite controversial. Nobody saw that application. It was sent somewhere that wasn't being um, uh, received. Uh, the fax was not being received, and I'm dating it because it was a fax that was sent. And there's an arcane rule that says that if you don't respond to the request within a period of time, you're automatically unionized. I remember that. Right? The yeah. city appealed that to the Labor Relations Board, and the Labor Relations Board I believe that's the agency that looked at it, the, the provincial entity that looked at it, said, no, uh, uh, too late, too bad, too sad. Uh, they're unionizing now, and now you have to deal with the implications of the unionization. And by the way, let me add that there is nothing wrong with the carpentry union. In fact, they're fine and honorable people that do a lot of good stuff in terms of training and safety and making sure that there is good control over construction projects. So this is not about them as an entity. It's about the process that was a little skewed. And, of course, now the fact that, that uh, the, the, uh, the, the unionized entity is in the city of Hamilton has been for the last 15 years uh, until this legislation permitted a disentanglement, uh, then every job that is bid for that's connected to the city of Hamilton, uh, even if it doesn't have uh, an overwhelming uh, need for carpentry-type work, has to go to a unionized entity rather than anybody who might be a low bidder and might be also a good a constructor, uh, but not unionized. And there are benefits to that, by the way. Uh, unions tend to, uh, wages tend to be higher. Uh, people earn a, a decent uh, wage, can, can do things to stimulate the economy. There are standards around safety that are much improved. So there's lots, lots to be said about that. But it is a more expensive process. And I remember reports that said we might be paying up to $40 million a year more uh, to, to not to shut out everybody but unionized uh, entities 
uh, to do any work that's done in the city of Hamilton having to do with construction. We do quite a bit of of work over the year Mm -hmm. with construction. Now, that's also been disputed, and in fact, Toronto did a study on that, and they said, no, it may add a million, a million and a half, uh, or two million dollars on a, you know, a hundred million dollar project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not, it's not that big of a deal. So, uh, I don't know. I haven't seen any latest numbers on that. Uh, but council, um, has, uh, taken, uh, a hold of this uh, issue, uh, which is now being permitted by the provincial government because they've introduced legislation that says, no, no, never mind, uh, whether you've got agreements, that bind you to a unionized setting in terms of, of giving work, you can give it to anybody, allow anybody to bid. And, of course, the more bidders you have, the the cost should go down. And council made the decision then to allow um, this open bid process to occur, much to the consternation, and I understand the, uh, the uh, intense lobbying being done by the carpentry union who wanted to maintain its monopoly. And this is happening because legislation changed that allowed them to break this agreement. That's right. So right. the province, uh, the, the, the right. port government introduced legislation that allowed competition. And uh, some people will celebrate that because they'll say, great, uh, you know, why shut anybody out? Others will say, but wait a minute, uh, yeah. along with this open process now come uh, perhaps people that don't have the standard of care uh, and the rules uh, and they may not even pay as well uh, that that will affect the economy in other ways even though it, it may save the city some money so and and correct me if I'm wrong here so this started with two city employees who were carpenters who unionized well, it, it started that way there were only two employees it started with, really with the uh, the the carpentry uh, union right. uh, 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 putting a, a, a push on to right. make Hamilton a unionized entity as far as carpentry. So concerned. by unionized these two these two employees within the city of Hamilton that changed the landscape that every job then had to be. That's years. right. That, that was the stimulus wow. that changed that whole landscape. It wow. started that way. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing, Larry. It is. It is a great story if it wasn't ours. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I'm only chuckling because of the irony of it, not because it hasn't been serious for sure. No, absolutely. And uh, so what does that say when that happens? How does that, again, here we go back, here we go back to the expressway, Larry. How does this stuff happen? Well, and I remember because I lived it, you know, and, and was caught up with it. And I had friends uh, in the carpentry union uh, and, and, and friends in other unions, by the way, uh, including the, the Laborers International Union of North sure. America. that yeah. was very upset with what, what we did. And we saw, actually, the, the Laborers International Union moved away from the liberal government uh, of Kathleen Wynne because they would do nothing about that legislation. And part of the reason why Ford moved on that legislation is that they were supported by a strong liberal supporter uh, entity uh, because of the uh, because of this issue. So it's it's had repercussions right down the the line. At the time when this happened, and we looked into it, we had it examined, and and I don't know whether there was cleverness or skullduggery at work uh, in terms of sending a a fax requesting unionization. Yeah. To a desk that was not manned, apparently. Hmm. Uh, don't ask me how that can happen, but apparently it did happen, and it wasn't responded to in time. Did somebody close their eyes? Was there a deal uh, that was done, or, yeah. or was it just innocent uh, a sort of uh, inattentiveness uh, that occurred, and, and, and because of an arcane rule around the timeline that says you got to respond by a certain time? 
I, I, in fact, if I remember correctly, I think it was sent on the Friday of a long weekend. Yeah, it was a bizarre was, twist to it right? that way. I yeah, mean, something like honestly, that. Honestly, yeah. honestly. Uh, so, so that that's what started it all. But, but all of those uh, have uh, serious implications. And some are good. Some have been very good for the city. And I've talked about some of them. And some, uh, in terms of the financial implications, not so positive. So how do the unions feel about this? Are they accusing the city of being union busters? Well, I haven't spoken to any of them. I've seen some of them uh, when I've been at City Hall that, uh, you know, some friends of mine that I know in the union uh, uh, camp that have been trying to convince councillors to, to hold the line uh, and keep the agreement, I'm sure they're very disappointed. I mean, their perspective would be, how could council allow this to happen? How could you throw out uh, well-paying jobs um, uh, that, that, that insist on safety standards uh, that we represent? Remember, Phil Gillies, who was a conservative cabinet minister uh, and now is involved in, in this process, wrote a letter that I saw um, advocating for council to keep the unionized setting. And uh, and so, you know, people on both sides of the political fence are weighing in on this, and uh, and it's a debate. And council made a decision fairly substantially, I think 11 to 1 or 12 to 1 or something, yeah. uh, to, uh, to um, uh, open it up. So, you know, they've got information that I don't, and we'll have to support what they did and see what the results will be. What about other cities on stuff like this? Well, I'm sure that what's... Well, I don't know how many other cities... Um, fell into the, yeah. into the sort of uh, right. a union milieu, so I don't know whether it affects them. I think Toronto did, and they'll probably be facing the same uh, the same pressure. Uh, do you think that's it for this, or is this going any farther? I mean, because it, it sort of seems like a wrong that was righted, or maybe not. I guess it depends who you ask. So is this over, or is does this continue on and, and it, it done in a, guess, in a more above-board way, I guess? Well, Scott, if I've learned anything about Hamilton, is that nothing is ever over. No. Yeah. So, so you know, this may be just the latest uh, chapter uh, in in the saga. But for sure, it looks as if um, the committee has made a decision, ratified by council, I guess, that uh, they're going to op- open up the bidding process. And there have been some very thoughtful and strong counselors uh, over the years. Um, um, advocating for this to occur, even before legislation permitted it. So now that legislation has allowed it to happen, this will be the new regime, and we'll have to see how it plays out. All right, one last question. We only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, yep. Being a former mayor, obviously when the city hall was redone, the forecourt uh, 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 positioned in such a way that allows gatherings to go. It's a great meeting place. we got the sign there now. It's a beautiful spot. Uh, but, of course, every Saturday it seems that there are issues that are discussed in the public square. How do you balance uh, the right to free speech and people getting upset about what's being said? Honest to God. Because that's you really know, what this whole space was built for. Well, you know, I, I as I said, I left for four days. I can't even leave without the city getting into trouble. <laughs> I don't understand how this could happen, you know. So, so that's another interesting and and uh, and polarizing debate, right? Because those on the left are saying, um, you know, we don't feel safe with those on the right. Some on the right are saying, well, we don't like it when those on the left gather and do their thing. So to be fair, you've got to allow everybody or allow nobody. Now, here's where I would personally draw the line, because there have been apparently some hate groups uh, yeah. spouting some hate messages 
um, and not just protesting for a point of view, a political point of view. They've actually been advocating hatred. Them, I would eliminate. And it wouldn't be too easy to spot those folks. They have signs that are hateful. That they they they've done some nefarious things in terms of uh, you know some some protests that have degenerated into violence. I think you can sort of pinpoint and say no, you guys are not welcome. So there needs to be a greater degree of diligence when somebody applies to do whatever in a public square like the uh, the city hall forecourt. Because I think it would be a shame to not allow people to express themselves in the people's building. That's what the city hall is all about. And it should allow, but it needs to be respectful. It needs to be, it can be passionate, but it needs to be peaceful above all. Uh, does every gathering that's down there need a permit every Saturday before you do anything? Well, not that I'm aware. Now, I may not be aware of the latest right. rules, Scott, but, but uh, yeah, generally speaking, yes, especially if you're gathering people. But, but, uh, but uh, you know, I, we've had the Gandhi Peace Festival there yeah. where they invite people to speak. I don't know whether they need a permit. I, I think they need permission because they set up chairs and whatnot. Right. So there needs to be some level of acceptance as to what's happening there. Larry Diani has been with us, former mayor of city of Hamilton, talking about all things Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.